This is the Visible Hand, Special Job Market Edition. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal. My guest today is Jack Fisher, who is a PhD student and job market candidate at the Department of Economics at the LSE. Today we are going to talk about his job market paper, Worker Welfare in the Geek Economy. Jack, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Joey. What is the gig economy? Um, so the gig economy, or gig work, is generally thought of as solo self-employed workers or independent contractors uh, connecting with customers via digital intermediary platforms. The gig economy and gig work is a big umbrella term. There's a lot of variety of the jobs that's contained within that. So that's the second part of the title. The first part of the title is worker welfare. Why do we want to measure what is the worker welfare? for people who have chosen to participate in the gig economy. Like typically, we believe as economists that if they are not slaves and they have chosen to participate in this activity, it must be that they are better off doing it than under the alternative. Of course, we could make as policymakers make the alternative more attractive one, but we must presume that the worker welfare is at least positive. The other thing that we can do is we could just ask the workers themselves and see whether they are satisfied or not with uh, this type of occupation. You are going to go through a very sophisticated tractor estimation model to measure this worker welfare. Why is this better than the alternatives that I just proposed? So, so I think one thing, maybe it's a matter of kind of academic interest, but what's facilitated this labor market is really technical innovation. And it's interesting to understand what are the returns to this technical innovation in terms of creating this market, which creates welfare for those participants who, as you say, choose to participate? Another thing that's important is that we want to understand you know, the structure of, of the surplus and how it's affected by prospective policies. So it's not just the kind of size of the surplus, which is of interest, but also how it's affected by changes to the gig work environment. So you are going to tell us later, and in fact, incorporating your model, the notion that maybe the fact that workers participate in this is actually not welfare maximizing because they are not able to accurately predict their own welfare. Uh, is that also like a reason to study this? Yes, I, th I think it's important. So one of the motivations I have going into this was the kind of revealed preference intuition, which you talked about earlier, which is the fact that people are taking up gig work suggests that it must be welfare improving. But there is you know, it's not hard to find negative stories about gig work. And so there seems to be a bit of a tension there between those two things. And I think these misperceptions offer a way to reconcile those contrasting pieces of evidence. So prior to your paper, can you just summarize briefly what is it that we know from an academic perspective about the gig economy? Sure. So alongside the gig economy and gig work has grown rapidly over the last decades. So if you go to kind of 2009 and do a Google trend search, um, it looks like the phrase gig economy almost wasn't a term. Since then, it's grown rapidly and the academic research has grown, grown alongside that. And it's typically studied different amenities associated with gig work. So there's some really interesting work looking at how gig workers value the pay arrangements um, with Uber, for example. Also, how they value, value the amenity of flexible time. Other things also start studying the demographics of gig workers who are participating in the gig economy. When Dimitri Kustas does some really interesting work looking at the times at which gig workers tend to enter the gig economy, which is often after they receive a negative income shock. So there's been a lot of, a lot of work on the different amenities associated with gig work. But no work directly measuring 
this work away for an exercise that you're going to do now? Yes, yeah, so, so I think studying the, the, what I'm going to call the gig work surface, I'm sure we'll talk about more soon, in some senses is quite a difficult problem because if you were to take away gig work from people, then they can do all sorts of things in its absence. They can completely reshuffle the activities that they, they do. So I think the study, you know, getting and identifying the value of that counterfactual is something that we, we haven't been able to do so far. So you just mentioned that the gig economy is a very broad concept and that there are a lot of things that fall in that category. Where does your data come from and what is the actual type of gig economy that you study in this paper? Yeah, as you say, the gig economy spans lots of different types of jobs. At one end, you kind of have the digital nomads. At the other, you have Uber drivers and what I study in the UK context, which is home and food delivery riders. And the data for my project comes from what's called in the UK a hire and reward insurer. So hire and reward insurance is a type of insurance that you need if you're carrying goods or passengers on UK roads. And so this, this insurer, um, in order to facilitate the insurance policies that it offers, collects data from lots of different gig economy platforms. This is third-party insurance. This is third-party insurance. And also you could, the, the insurer also offers some additional levels of insurance as well. So this will be companies like Deliveroo, Uber Eats, exactly. and so on. But your data is not from them, but from the a company that insures the motorcycle drivers that carry that food. Exactly. Right? Yeah. How does this market work for the, in the relation between the drivers and the delivery platform? Sure. So, yeah, so, so the drivers um, are free to pick their hours, free to onboard and offboard with the platform. And essentially the way it works is when they log on to the application for, the, for whatever platform they're working for on their phone, they'll be offered jobs to go pick up food from restaurants, drive to the end customer and deliver the food. The platforms vary a little bit in terms of how they offer financial incentives and the information that they tell drivers. So for instance, some platforms will tell drivers the final destination of the food. Some platforms will just tell them the restaurant that they need to go to initially. So is it the case that the fees or wages that they are paid per job depend on, on an hourly basis between on the uh, effects of supply and demand, that is to attract more drivers when supply is low and so on? Yeah, so, so the companies do do some kind of this dynamic pricing, which is probably most associated with Uber, but there's a lot of variation in the wage just from variation in supply and demand, which isn't fully kind of um, equated with, with the systems that they have. You can also think of things that affect the hourly wage rate, like traffic, waits at restaurants. Some restaurants are better at serving food on time than others, and issues like that. So this is, in terms of the relation between drivers and platforms, you said that these drivers need third-party insurance. How does that work? So the third-party insurance, you can essentially buy in two forms. The market offers it in two forms. The first is um, a fix, what I call a fixed insurance policy, which covers you for 30 days. And the second form is an hourly policy, which I call the variable policy, which basically covers you by the hour that you work. Um, so from a cost minimizing perspective, workers who anticipate working few hours are going to prefer the variable policy. They think they're going to work a lot of hours and they're going to prefer the fixed policy and spread that fixed cost out over many hours. What data do you have from that insurer? So from, from the insurer, broadly speaking, there's kind of three, three pieces of data I observe. First is job level data that's sent from the platforms to the insurer. So I observe the hours they work. And importantly, also on that data, you have, of course, the user ID, but also the policy ID. And with that policy ID, I can connect it to the quotes data so I can see where the workers picked the variable or the fixed premium and the prices that they faced. 
The third piece of data is um, survey data, which I conducted in collaboration with the firm, which asks about kind of uh, these workers' experiences of the gig economy. I mean, the objective here is to measure the welfare. I, I guess here it will be like the producer welfare. This is going to depend on things that we don't observe directly. So you are going to have a model of this thing so that you can like recover some unknown parameters and so on. Before that, you have like a section in which you try to motivate the basic features that your model is going to have. And uh, you call it like facts about gig work, gig work participation. What are those? So I, broadly speaking, I kind of present four facts. The first is um, just that there's huge dispersion in the intensity of engagement with the gig economy. So some workers work 40 hours a week, which is like a full-time job. Others only work 40 hours in a month. So there's a big range um, of engagement in the gig economy. And I suggest that this is indicative of people extracting different value from the gig economy. That, that is kind of gross. So not net of their outside option, but just from the fact that they're participating in the gig economy. The second fact I show is that workers don't minimize their costs perfectly, both as you might expect um, with this policy choice. So some people work too much for the variable policy, but select the variable policy. Some people work too little, but select the fixed policy. Those non-cost minimizing choices can essentially be driven by kind of broadly speaking two things. The first is um, ex post shocks that realize after they've made the policy decision. So they make their policy choice with the best intentions to minimize costs, but thereafter some uncertainty realizes and they're pushed off their most economical policy. The second thing that could be causing that is ex ante misperceptions. So perhaps they think gig work is gonna offer them a higher wage than in fact it really does. And because they think it's going to offer them a higher wage, they think they're going to work lots of hours. So there could also be some, some ex-ante misperceptions. And so my second two empirical facts are really designed to disentangle those two forces. And what I show is that when you petition the workers based on their policy choices and their hours into people who make non-cost minimizing choices and people who make cost minimizing choices, then that's actually predictive of subsequent behavior, which is indicative of ex-ante misperceptions, at least driving some of the non-cost minimizing policy choices. So in particular, I show that like all optimistic workers, they exit the gig economy quicker than pessimistic workers, who are the workers who pick the variable policy but work too much. Um, and also optimistic workers reduce their hours um, initially upon entering the gig economy. Why is this supporting the ex-ante misperception as opposed to the exposed shocks, because you could think that, you know, imagine a world in which they choose perfectly given the information that they have, some of them receive a negative shock, so then the hours that they end up working are lower than expected, and then eventually they realize, you know, that this shock is permanent, and therefore they exit, right? Wouldn't that, you know, exposed type of shock be predicting this type of pattern as well? Yes, yeah, so, so in my model, I, I have some shocks that are transitory shocks and they really can't rationalize these patterns. I think maybe what you're alluding to is a kind of more dynamic type of shock. What I show is that these shocks, if they are you know, just pure noise, then they really shouldn't um, be correlated with any, any subsequent behavior. I think you know it's possible that you come up with some dynamic patterns for shocks which should kind of push in a similar direction to this. But also some of the evidence, which I didn't allude to earlier, which is about the kind of timing of the exits, I think is really suggestive of misperceptions and, and learning as well, which we haven't talked about yet. The, the other question is, over what horizon are you measuring this hour's work 
that you compare against the uh, choices that they made in terms of the fixed insurance, the fixed insurance or the variable insurance, because it could be that, you know, perhaps in the first month, they don't work enough to be able to justify that fixed insurance. But there is variability from month to month and over a longer horizon, uh, it kind of adds up, you know, and they cannot be switching insurance from one type to another every month because yes. that will be the only switching costs and things like that. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So, so I, in terms of kind of doing this categorization, I talked about uh, petition workers and show that that's predictive of subsequent behavior. One thing I use is alternative definitions of cost minimizing. So the main one that I use in the paper is just on your average month, are you minimizing your costs with your policy choice? But I do something akin to what you're saying, which is basically over the course of your tenure in the gig economy, did you minimize your costs if you were restricting to just choosing one policy? And I show that the results are robust to that as well. So I'm going to repeat this here because it's kind of important. So you have on the like, stylized facts, you are dividing workers into three groups depending on how many hours they work and what type of policy they choose. So the optimists are the ones that choose the fixed contract. So fixed means that you pay the same amount of insurance regardless of how many hours you work. That obviously is better if you work out of hours. But the optimists are picking the fixed contract but not working sufficient hours to justify it. The pessimists are doing the opposite. They're choosing the variable contract and working so many hours that the variable contract is very expensive relative to the fixed contract. They will be better off by, by switching. And then you have the, I think you could call them the cost minimizers who are choosing the right contract for the amount of hours that they work. That's the, that's the great, I mean, the critical split of the, of the population here. Exactly. And one thing I would just say is the minimizers, it's not that they don't suffer from anti-misperceptions or exposed shocks. It's just that at least those are not severe enough to that they reveal themselves through the, through the policy choice. But that description is exactly right. Right. So, so if I am incredibly optimist and I am predicting to work hours that are well above the cutoff point and the, I'm a little bit optimist, so I end up working less hours, but still justifying the fixed contract, you don't put me in the optimist category. Precisely. Okay, so these are the motivating pieces of evidence. You have a structural model of labor supply that you take to the data. What are the elements of this model? Sure, so I think the bare bones of the model are really three different things. So it's a model of gig work participation. So the key economic agent is the worker. And a worker is endowed with three things. So firstly, valuation of gig work, which is going to drive how much they want to participate in the gig economy. Secondly, an initial misperception, which is going to dictate how they perceive that when that true valuation when they initially enter the gig economy. And thirdly, an outside option, which is what their utility is going to be if, they, if they're not participating in the gig economy. And so with those three objects, they decide how to participate in the gig economy. So initially, there's just an upfront participation decision that's going to involve comparing your perceived valuation with your outside option. If you do decide to participate, then you want to decide whether you're going to be on the fixed or variable policy. That's going to involve your perceived valuation because that's going to dictate how many hours you work. And then if you, once you've decided your policy and you've decided to participate, then every period you're going to pick the hours that you work. 
There's a final decision, which is through learning about your misperceptions, you might decide to endogenously exit. And that's going to be analogous to, to your participation decision. If after a sufficient time has passed, you perceive that it's no longer worth your while remaining in the gig economy, then you'll exit. So let's talk about the misperception of the valuation. You call it misperception, which is a word that could imply a behavioral bias, mm -hmm. as well as just insufficient information. Mm -hmm. Which of those is it? So, so for some reason, I picked the word misperception is because I want to remain a little bit agnostic about that. But the, 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 way, the way I um, model it is that at the population level, there's no systematic misperception. So the average misperception is zero at the population level. Because there's this selection mechanism into the gig economy, because if your perceived value is sufficiently high, you'll enter, there is a little bit of optimism for those people who are participating in the gig economy. In terms of a micro foundation, kind of what you could think about is you can just think about, you know, gig work is a relatively new market for the reasons we've talked about, the returns to that. So participating in that market are fairly uncertain. So people are going to have a dispersed prior. And for various reasons, they might get a noisy signal, you know, a high signal or a low signal, and that can really be responsible for misperceptions. Um, I've done in the structural model where I kind of really specify the distribution of these misperceptions, I've kind of played around with whether things are systematic or not, we can talk about that more in the future. So you have a distribution of valuations of gig work, which means that uh, for some people, it's very unpleasant to do this job, for other people, not so much. Okay. So that makes sense. You have a distribution of these misperceptions or the initial perceptions of the valuation. Mm -hmm. Some people think that they are going to derive a lot of benefit, others don't. These two things don't have to be identical to each other, but they will converse to each other as the worker learns. That's fine. Then you have the outside options. Workers are going to vary also in terms of their outside options. This is a component that I at least is very important here because uh, these workers uh, in the gig economy, typically we don't expect them to have great alternative employment opportunities. But also some heterogeneity in this respect. The question that I have about the outside options is what they are capturing in your model and whether uh, the way that you are modeling them is reflective of our intuition of what outside options, what is the role that outside options are playing here. So if I have a job working for LNC 40 hours a week, let's say, my outside option is going to be working for some other university, also 40 hours a week. Here, the way that you model outside options is as the value that the workers get if they stop working in the gig economy. I thought that the whole point of the gig economy is that you can decide on your outside option on an hour, you can access your outside option on an hour by hour basis. That is, you can choose to work epsilon, and that means that you will be enjoying your outside option for the rest of the day, perhaps if it is leisure. Mm -hmm. Or you can not get the outside option because you're working, taking jobs for 18 hours a day. Wouldn't this, like an alternative use of the time that is variable, inversely, you know, proportional to the amount of hours that you work, be the most natural way to model this in terms of... I know that you have an element in the levels, but I mean with respect to the heterogeneity. So, so I, I absolutely agree that part of the value of the gig economy comes from 
Um, maybe it's a bit technical, but kind of convexifying the budget constraints so people can equate their marginal rate of substitution between leisure and leisure and consumption with the wage rate. I think broadly speaking, you can think of essentially two components to what workers' utility would look like outside of the gig economy. Firstly, is they're going to replace the hours that they're in the gig economy with something else, and that's going to have some that deliver them some value. The second thing is that they might engage in a reshuffling of their activities. If I give the example of somebody who's working full-time in the gig economy, perhaps absent the gig economy, they'd actually undertake two part-time jobs or one part-time job in leisure. So you know that, that, that reshuffling of activities, if you take away one activity, is actually quite a complicated, you know, it's a complicated decision that they're facing. And so the idea with the model is that you kind of have this level effect, which I identify with that endogenous exit, um, to capture that reshuffling. In some senses, even though it's a structural model, in some sense, it's kind of capturing that in a reduced form way. And the model also has an opportunity, or it has a linear cost of working, which you can think of as the opportunity cost of time. So it captures, it has two, um, two elements to capture both those components that make up outside options. So the linear cost of uh, working that would be capturing the type of outside that I mean, because that would be not enjoying the leisure, yes, right? Yeah. My question is more like, shouldn't there be, shouldn't the main have the with respect to that one, as opposed to the other one? I, th I think that's a valid question. To me, these, it's a little bit more intuitive to think that there's not so much variation in that wage rate. So broadly speaking, these are quite low skilled workers. They're going to be looking at jobs that are probably around you know, alternative jobs that are probably not much higher than a minimum wage. So I actually think in terms of the opportunity cost of time, it's intuitive to suspect there's not lo lots of heterogeneity in that dimension compared to what they might do in terms of completely reshuffling their hours. In the structural model, I have actually allowed for variation in the linear cost of working. It's a little bit ambiguous how it's identified relative to my page five model because it's another parameter that I have to estimate, but it doesn't seem to change the results too much. So tell me more about how the model actually works. There are these workers that vary across all these dimensions. Obviously, there's going to be a labor supply decision. How is that determined? How is the choice of one policy versus the other determined? And so on. Sure. So, so I think the one constraint, the, the data is incredibly rich, but the one constraint I do have in the data is that I don't observe earnings. So the way that I infer how much value people are getting from the gig economy is by looking at how long they work in the gig economy. So I essentially set up the labor supply, supply problem as maximizing a concave function where the optimum is going to be determined by your valuation of gig work. Kind of valuations of gig work are essentially determined by the distribution of hours in the gig economy. Then in terms of the opportunity cost of time, this linear cost of working term that we're talking about, I kind of think of that as turning everything into a money metric. And that's informed by labor supply elasticities that have been estimated in the labor economics literature and policy choices people are making um, between the fixed and variable policy determining based on the different prices that they face. Then in terms of uh, the misperceptions, the distribution of misperceptions that I specify, that's really identified off how prevalent non-cost minimizing decisions are and how you know the magnitude of those um, non-cost minimizing decisions. So are workers really far away from justifying their policy choice um, or not? And then the, the kind of last key component, I would say, is the outside options. And outside options are identified by um, endogenous exits. So the idea is if you take an optimistic worker, this is a worker who kind of over-evaluates, if you like, 
their value of gig work. As they enter the gig economy, they're going to learn over time that um, their, the value of gig work isn't as high as they expected. And if it falls sufficiently, then they're going to exit the gig economy. And the point at which they exit is going to, their perceived valuation is going to equal their outside option. So I'm, allowed, I'm able to infer the outside option from that. So let's see whether I understood how this fractional estimation works. You have some choices, exit or not exit, hours of work, condition or not exit, the initial choice of fixed versus variable, and so on and so forth. So you end up with a system of equations. In this system of equations, you are going to have the parameters that you want to estimate. These parameters are like things like the mean of evaluation, the, the variance of the evaluations, the mean outside option, the variance of the outside option, things like that, that are you know, parameters determining all these choices. Then you estimate this with something called the simulated methods of moment estimator. What is that and how does it work? Sure. So the simulated method of moments estimator is, is a great way of estimating parameters, essentially, if you don't have kind of closed form solutions in, in your model. So the way this works in my case is I'm going to specify a fundamental, which is a joint distribution of misperceptions, valuations, and outside options. And I specify that as a log normal distribution. The log normal distribution is quite an appealing distribution because it can be fairly symmetric. It can look like a normal distribution and it also can be a bit more skewed kind of going towards a proto distribution. So, so it's a distribution I'd say people like to specify when they're estimating simulated method moments. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to, with this joint log normal distribution, I'm going to sample lots of different individuals. So I'll do one draw and that draw is going to give me an individual with a specific valuation, outside option, misperception. And I'm going to simulate millions of these agents and then push them through the model given certain parameter values and see the choices they make. And then I'm going to compare those choices they make with what I see in the data. I'm going to adjust the parameters to make those choices look more and more like the data until I can't make it look like the data anymore, essentially. I think that you explained it well, but let me say it in a different way, which I think is simpler for somebody who doesn't understand these things. And correct me if there is something that I'm saying that is not quite right. As I said, system of equations with some unknown parameters, but these uh, systems of equations for a population should be generating some set of statistics that we observe in the data. Uh, for instance, one of the statistics, the hours work by the average individual. And this is going to depend on, according to the model, on the valuation of the average individual, the misperception to that valuation, the elasticity of the labor, so a lot of things. All these things we don't really know. But we know that together with certain error terms, you were talking about the log normal or this or that, that create a certain amount of noise, they are going to create a statistic that is the thing that you observe in the data. Then you are going to, as you said, create a lot of draws so that you, you know, simulate certain of these statistics for certain parameter values, and you are going to be that constantly iterating until you find the parameter values of all these things that predict numbers that are as close as possible to the actual statistics that you find in the data. Something along this exactly. lines. Exactly, that's great. So you have a, a list that takes almost like a full page of all the statistics. I, the technical name of this thing is empirical moments that you have. 
There are 23 empirical moments that are going to help you to estimate 10 parameters. The 10 parameters are the, the ones that I said about mean of devaluation, standard deviation. This standard deviation and all this is important you know, for the distribution of welfare gains and all this. My question is, 23 empirical moments to estimate para 10 parameters, isn't that a bit overkill? Isn't the, mod the model like over-identified there? You know, the key thing is you need at least as many moments as, as you do parameters. The more, the more empirical moments that you can explain with, with fewer parameters, the better. I think the, the, the kind of key rule that I was following was that if you think this moment is especially formative of a parameter, then, then you essentially want to include it. And so that's the, that's the rule I followed. I think you're right. My model would be identified with fewer empirical moments. And, you know, I, I could do that as well. The other thing that I want to go back to is something that you mentioned a little bit earlier, which was the word identification. Mm -hmm. I think that you are maybe not using the word identification in the, in the way that other people typically use it. That is, you have a, some type of like a set of facts, okay, to motivate the way that you are modeling this economy. Now, if this model is correct, that is, if they are, these are like the main determinants of decisions uh, in, this, in this market, that is under that assumption, you are calculating the parameters of the model so that they can match the statistics or moments that we find in the data. But this reasoning, not specifically about your paper, obviously, but this reasoning in this type of methodology is really circular because if this was not the right model, then you wouldn't be estimating the right parameters. And there is no like, argument that persuades us that this is the right model in that there is indeed a relation between variable X and variable Y in the way that we typically, in the more like reduced form tradition, we try to extract exogenous variation to identify these causal effects. You were talking earlier about identification, but I think that maybe a better word for this would be variation. That is, it is the variation that comes from observing this variable or the other variable that is allowing you to pin down this parameter or the other parameter, right? Like you are not claiming that this variation is exogenous. Yes, yeah, you're right. So there's, there's not as much. So that, I think that's a, that's a great question. So when, when I think about identification, and I'm, I'm open to a debate about whether we, can, we should call it identification or variation, I think about does changing the parameters of my model impact those empirical moments differently for each parameter? Because if, if two parameters change the empirical moments in the same way, then it's going to be hard to distinguish you know, what the value of those two parameters are. So I think about it as the parameters distinctively affecting the empirical moments in different ways. I think there are some parallels with the kind of more reduced form evidence which you talk about. So typically, when we think about reduced form, we think about a linear model. This is a non-linear model. It relies a little bit more, I guess, as you say, kind of in faith, the model that I've written down is, is accurate. I think in terms of exogeneity, where I would draw a parallel with my model and some reduced form evidence would be in how I identify outside options. So. What I have to do to identify outside options is identify outside options off endogenous exits of the optimists. So if you're not an optimist, then I don't see you endogenously exit the gig economy. 
So my model has to extrapolate the distribution of outside options, the optimists, to the broader population. It can allow for some correlations, so it's not exactly as strict as that, but that's, that's how I do it in the baseline model. And so you can think of that as misperceptions being exogenous with respect to valuations and um, outside options. So that's where I draw the parallel with the reduced formula. The first part I understood, and let me, let me give you an example. This is a system of equations, so everything depends on everything. That's the, the whole point of the systems of equations. But what you are saying is, for instance, there is one parameter that I'm interested in, and this parameter is the average, or maybe another parameter will be the variation in the speed of learning, right? Like how, how quickly workers use their experience to realize that actually the valuations are higher or lower than they were initially expected. There is a moment or statistic that you observe in the data, which is how quickly workers change the hours after entering, right? Like clearly, the, this, this statistic is going to tell us something. In fact, it should be the most, it should have the highest impact on this parameter that you. This is what I understand that you mean by identification, that, that observation in the data, this statistic is the one that has the most effect in, in affecting this parameter that you want that you want to know. The second part on, you know, projecting from one group to another. Can you repeat it? Because I, that, I didn't quite understand how that is a parallel with identification in reduced form. Sure. So, so the, the way that I identify outside options in the model is primarily through the combination of misperceptions and learning and then endogenous exit. And more precisely, it's going to be the optimists. So these are people who entered the gig economy thinking the value of delivery is a bit higher than it is. As they enter and learn over time that um, their optimism in the gig economy was, was misplaced, they might leave the gig economy. And so I identify their outside option by saying the point at which they leave, their outside option must equal their perceived valuation. So if I can infer their perceived valuation, then I can infer their outside option. Now, I only observe that, that endogenous exit decision for optimistic workers. So the distribution of outside options that I observe for optimistic workers, I then extrapolate to the broader population. For that extrapolation to be valid, what you want to assume is that misperceptions are uncorrelated with valuations and outside options. I can actually be a little bit more robust than that in how I specify correlations in the model, but that's the kind of broad idea. And so the parallel I was trying to draw was that the, the assumption I have to make to make that extrapolation valid is similar to assuming that your residual term is uncorrelated with your regresses. So doing all of this, you end up with a bunch of numbers. Some numbers are maybe very interesting from an economic perspective, others not so much. What are the numbers that you want to emphasize that allowed us to learn about the gig economy from this exercise? Sure. So, so the bottom line number, which I'm sure we'll talk about, is going to be the gig work surplus and so on. In terms of the direct premises that you can learn a bit about, I think there's a few interesting ones. So the, the speed of learning in the gig economy, I think, is an interesting premise. So the functional form that I use to, to operationalize learning in my model is based, is kind of derived from a model of Bayesian learning. And the premise of value I find basically suggests that workers learn very quickly about the value of gig work once they participate, which is quite intuitive because over a month you'd expect to learn quite a lot about gig work. Another interesting model, uh, sorry, premise that's 
more directly interpretable is, at least in terms of how it translates into the characteristics of the simulated model, is the level of misperceptions for those who participate in the gig economy. So I find that once you look at the participants in the gig economy, they tend to overvalue gig work by about 4% relative to, to its true value. Which is a small number, and because we're looking at participants, it's a bigger number for than for the population, because obviously the participants will be the ones that were more optimistic or that had the highest value expected valuation about, exactly. about uh, the gig economy. Exactly. And so something we haven't talked about is the survey that I ran, which tried to get an idea of asking workers, uh, how did your experience of the gig economy match your expectations? And there is a general tendency for workers to report that they found gig work to be somewhat disappointing. Can you tell us about the survey? So, so the survey was run in collaboration with the firm and it kind of surveyed the work, uh, their current um, customers. Unfortunately, that's not the same customers that I observe in my kind of structural estimation. But essentially, we asked them um, a few questions about how did the gross earnings compare to what you expected? How did your costs compare to what you expected? How was the difficulty of the job relative to what you expected? And also whether they subscribe to learning a lot about the value of gig work over time. And as I just said, the thing that really comes out is that workers systematically tend to report um, gig, work, gig work disappointing them in some regard. Um, and also they subscribe a lot to learning about the value of gig work over time. So that really corroborates the um, inference I drew from the reduced form empirics. As we have been mentioning throughout, the whole objective here is to study the amount of welfare and uh, also how this uh, welfare differs across different type of workers. The, some of the parameters that you estimate are going to help you with that. What are those and what is your conclusion about this worker welfare in the means and the variances? Sure. So, so the, the key thing that's going to define the gig work surplus is the difference between valuations and outside options. And so when you look at that difference on average, um, I find that the average gig work participant enjoys a surplus, a monthly surplus of around a thousand US dollars, which is equal to around one third of the mean employees income in the UK for one month. But that's there's huge dispersion in that range. So some workers are on the kind of margin of participating, some are really enjoying thousands of pounds or dollars in, in surplus. To enjoy a surplus of one thousand dollars. Do you need to earn at least $1,000? So you don't technically, because, and that goes back to what we were talking about for the outside option. So if I give you an example of somebody working in the gig economy in the evening, if we think they're outside options, so absent the gig economy, they would um, switch to working a daytime job. If in that daytime job or those daytime hours, their reservation wage was actually incredibly high, then that reservation wage is going to be as important in determining their outside option as the wage that they earn during the gig economy. But my point is that the reservation wage cannot go below zero. Therefore, yes, if the reservation wage is very high, then you need to earn a lot of money, well above a thousand dollars, in order to enjoy a surplus of a thousand dollars. Yes. But if the reservation wage cannot go below zero, because the worst that you can do is not earn any money in an alternative job, then you have to earn at least a thousand dollars enjoy a surplus of a thousand dollars is that not correct so i my intuition is a little bit different so and that's because of the reshuffling of activities that occurs so you might be earning an amount of money 
while you're working in the gig economy and that amount of money, the surplus from that is going to be the income that you earn times the marginal utility of income net of the cost of the effort that you expend to earn that money. But gig work is also allowing you to work some unusual hours and free up other hours in the day. And those other hours in the day can be very valuable as well. Um, and so that can actually mean that your surplus, it's not what I find, but it, theoretically your surplus could be bigger than the, the amount of income that you earn. There is also, uh, maybe you mentioned it, the, the finding that a lot of the surplus is received by workers who work relatively few hours. Mm -hmm. And this is critical, I mean, for the counterfactuals that you are going to tell us about. What is the intuition of that? So that's really driven by an extensive margin phenomenon. So just to repeat what you said, the, the aggregate gig work surplus is really concentrated amongst workers who work few hours in the gig economy. And that's driven by the fact that there's so many workers who just engage in gig work part-time. So those gig workers who work in the gig economy full-time and in excess of full-time, on average, receive a higher surplus. But when you sum together just the sheer number of people working for you as in the gig economy and their surplus, then you find that most of the gig work surplus is created and enjoyed by low hours workers. It's just, so therefore it's just like the artifact of the large numbers of people that work very little. Yes. They just add up to a lot. Exactly. Even each of them, I see. So like very often when I read like this structural estimation, there's always a section at the end about counterfactuals and very often these counterfactuals are things that I did not know that I needed. In this case, the counterfactuals you do are actually grounded on, on actual proposals that uh, people in certain um, jurisdictions have passed or, or are trying to pass uh, about regulating the gig economy. What are those? Sure, so the, the first counterfactual I examine is um, related to this proposal um, or something that was actually legislated in California called Proposition 22. So this was a ballot initiative where the population in California and um, when it voted essentially whether or not to implement this. And one aspect of this policy was that for um, rideshare drivers, if they work more than 100 hours in a month, then they're entitled to a health insurance stipend, which they use to buy health insurance. Um, so the idea is that, you know, the key components of this policy are really an hours threshold. So if you work sufficiently, you're going to be entitled to some fixed benefits. And I calibrate a counterfactual policy experiments, which um, replicates those key components. But just to be clear, a counterfactual is the following. You have like estimated all these parameters. So you end up with all these like bunch of equations, but now you know, or, or you believe that you know these parameters. And now you say, I'm going to change some of these parameters. Whatever they were, I'm going to make them bigger or smaller, etc. And then see how all these statistics or moments change accordingly. Yes, exactly. So, so I guess one, one of the benefits of the structural model is you know which parameters are truly structural and invariant to different counterfactuals and you also know which ones you can change and play around with. What is the conclusion from this? So the, so, so, so the key thing that I try to engage with this, with this counterfactual is that California Proposition 22 and what I um, examine, the statutory incidence is on the platforms to pay workers. But we know that given the market structure, there's going to be some economic incidence on workers. So that means workers are going to bear some of the costs associated with these, these benefits. And what I find is that if workers even bear more than 
40% of the costs associated with this policy, then this policy that was designed to help workers actually makes them worse off. And just to get a sense of that kind of 40% pass through to workers, which I talked about, there's a paper by Amanda Kowalski and John Korstad where they find that employee-sponsored health insurance, um, the incidence on the wage rate is 85 cents on the dollar. So it seems quite likely that um, that 40% incidence on workers would be crossed in reality. So this policy that you are studying as a counterfactual in which you need to work a certain amount of hours in order to get that benefit. Obviously, every time that we put discontinuities in a policy proposal, we are going to think, well, if that proposal was continuous, was a little bit more sophisticated, then it would be better. Mm -hmm. The alternative here, I guess, I mean, given that, of course, you are not modeling health insurance, but you are modeling giving them a check of $400, which is the equivalent of whatever you the, the, the most rational proposal would be, let's just put a minimum wage here, right? So that for every hour work, we give them a small premium. Therefore, the benefit, if you want, is proportional to the number of hours. Wouldn't that be better? And wouldn't that uh, have better welfare effects according to your model? Yes, I, I think that, it, that would be potentially an improvement. So that, that's one thing I actually want to do. I mean, it takes a bit of time computationally to kind of find the optimal policy. Minimum wages in the gig economy are something that have been debated quite a bit by policymakers, you know, whether they're um, actually feasible to implement. So I think a policy like what you're suggesting, I think it's quite likely it would be welfare improving, especially relative to, to what I examined, where it has discontinuities, which cause inefficiencies. But it would also likely require some new data collection and, and administration um, to implement. Um, it's something that definitely is um, examinable in, in the structural model, um, and I, I could do that. Anything else that you want to conclude from this exercise? From this counterfactual exercise? Uh, from your paper in general? So I, I, I suppose the, uh, the other important thing is that because the gig work surplus is really concentrated amongst low hours workers, um, anything that reduces fixed cost to gig work is likely to be welfare improving to these workers and also bringing in new workers. So one thing I examine is the introduction of the variable policy, which we've talked about is important from identification. And it seems like that actually was a, was a big boom for workers. So really increase the work, worker welfare. Um, the other thing is the role of misperceptions in gig work. These misperceptions, even though they're quite small in the population, actually seem to stymie the gig work surplus quite substantially. So policies aimed at kind of improving transparency about the um, gig work experience would be likely to be welfare improving as well. In, in some sense, this uh, introduction of the variable insurance policy goes back to the issue that we were mentioning that a little bit more of sophistication rather than discreteness. Mm -hmm is going to be welfare improving because you know it, it, it tailors the benefits or in this case the cost to the actual hours that they choose. Exactly. Workers can fine-tune their preferences and their, their hour selection. Exactly. And thank you, Jack, for coming to the podcast. Thank you. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to the other papers that we discussed, introductory music and logo by Etana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Tan.